These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind. wind door. on the subject of conflicting personalities and people questioning everything once more i find this an amazing segue into the very next topic that we had specifically the conflicting dynamic between abigail and james (laughs) this is something we talked about back when we were doing our full in-depth discussion of secret rooms even though that story is whole in and of itself in terms of having a distinct beginning, middle, and end, it is really only the beginning for James and Abigail's personal arcs. We've seen them put onto a specific path where there are internal stuff that they have to deal with in terms of themselves and in terms of each other. But the thing that we're immediately seeing is that even though the two of them managed to work together and survive the House of Respect, survive all the events of Secret Rooms, they're still clashing up against each other, as was alluded to, you know, them still having a complicated relationship in those earlier introductory chapters that we were talking about. James seems incapable of letting Abigail tell the story herself, even though Thomas asked her to do it. James needs to champion the aspects of the story that he thinks are important, especially when they are centered around conflicting opinions between himself and Abigail. Mm. I think that incapable of letting Abigail tell the story herself is a bit strong, but I see your point. Abigail is recounting the story of Verstecht, and she emphasizes the human motivations and emotions that she felt from the individuals they encountered there both living and dead. And James isn't so set on telling a detached, unbiased account of what transpired with no supposition on the character of the people they met because he is offering his own speculations on what was going on and the motivations that led Krieger to make the decision he did. But on the points that he still can't fully sign off on their verifiability, such as the ghost they encountered, which Abigail is so certain of, while he remains sceptical, he wants to get the record straight because, like McTavish we were talking about earlier, this is important stuff and its broader implications are potentially huge, so he needs to ensure that the record is as foolproof as possible. Mm. Once more, it's about the differences in what Abigail feels sure of and what he feels sure of. They pattern match in different ways, They have different kinds of intelligence that they're working from. And while to a certain extent, Abigail seems to be responding more to like personal hunches or the way she feels about it. We also know from the audience experiencing the events of Secret Rooms, as well as 
just sort of understanding the nature of the story that's going on, that these things very likely are significant in some way. Even if you or I cannot be certain about whether Charlotte's ghost was actually there or whether Abigail was tapping into something else when all of that was going on. It's not insignificant. Something did happen, and we feel inclined to trust the account of both of them, but it just feels frustrating that at this point, even though they are colleagues, James has such a sticking point in terms of being like, no, we can't be certain this is actually real. I think that you're, it it feels like, even though he doesn't actually say anything like that, in his own mind, James is being like, oh, you're just being emotional. We have no, we we have to rely on the facts and only the facts. And that, that it feels weird to say that because that's not the kind of thing that I would expect coming from Alex as a writer obviously, but it is a significant conflict that does not end with this moment. Their personal issues, which are tied into what they experienced, not just at the House of Respect, but all of their history from their years at Weirwood, is coloring their ability to properly communicate. And that is spilling out into their interactions with other people. Hmm. I was mentioning earlier about how with their interactions with other people that to a certain extent they were a little constrained for a lot of their development because their childhood they had relatively normal levels of new interactions and surroundings but for their sort of teenage years like growing into adults they had a very closed community which meant Mm -hmm. they didn't really meet new people and now they're doing that much more and you can see how they are growing open to that they are sort of feeding off from it and that scene that was an addition to the definitive edition of uh, secret rooms where abigail uh, meets up with carl and virgil and actually has like a conversation with them afterwards Mm. she initiates that it's one of those editions that i like can't fathom that it wasn't in there previously it's such a (laughs) lovely little moment and it's just things like that which kind of show that all of these characters are growing because it wouldn't really be particularly uh interesting if they weren't I've said interesting far too many times in this podcast, but... um, Did you know that if you say interesting five times in front of a mirror, then I appear and chase you around the garden with a bit of wood? Is Alex looming from the nearby mirror, sort of looking at you sternly? Absolutely. Um, Abigail, my point, I think, is that Abigail is just a person who feels as if from that initial interaction from her suggesting why don't we just kill them like that is almost a defining thing where Mm. like it's a microcosm of the broader problem of reunifying america like everyone's got so used to relying and trusting on known people and known elements interactions with people carry a level of uncertainty and the idea of like why do you kill them like half if half the time it doesn't work because half the time it does work it's that you have to take a chance you have to engage with these 
unknown quantities out there because that's how you get shit done. Hmm. No, I, uh, sorry, I just sort of struck by the purity of that assertion in terms of the difference between relying on the experiences and the understanding that you had that kept you safe at one point and the importance of realizing that sometimes doing everything a certain way doesn't work for you anymore, especially when the world has become more chaotic and you have to try new things in order to actually make any progress. And that is one of the central tenets of new century in general and mm-hmm. is going to come back again and again. So I just find it amusing that you managed to bring it up now as a part of this side conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still have a lot of other things to talk about, and I feel like we need to let that idea marinate a little bit more before we come back to it. The latter half of Chapter 6 finally puts into context something mentioned at the end of Arlington. We now see this is where the final chapters of that book and Steamheart cross over. The moment that I'm specifically referring to is Sarah and Thomas said together that the goal after the riot in Washington to try and get everybody back on track was to give the American public heroes. And now we find that this idea originated with truth, and it was basically something that Thomas may have had to be convinced into doing, given that his original plan was to just do all this stuff behind the scene and not make it into a big PR thing. We see the back and forth of the argument, and over the course of this, a few things come out as a result of this conflict. The first of which being, for one of the few times, we are put in a position of finding Thomas more frustrating than usual. Arlington, the book, tended to take the side of Thomas overall, but here, Truth's idea appeals to us as well, not just as an in-story development, but as a framing narrative. Once more, bringing it back to Lord of the Rings... It's like the Fellowship coming together, and we want to see (laughs) our group lauded as the heroes they are. But Mm. Thomas, more than anything else, just seems frustrated that people won't simply do as he says. You're being a bit of a Boromir here, Thomas, like, you know. (laughs) You cannot simply drive into Wendigo territory. (laughs) Yes, the ring should go to Mordor. (laughs) Not Mordor. Wait, no, that's exactly the thing. Shit. (laughs) It's been more than 10 minutes since I've watched these films. I need to re-up my familiarity with the quoting material. It's just we're getting hung up on the memes. If ever there was a sentence that sums up a concerning amount of my life, it's getting hung up on the memes <laughs> is definitely one of them. Anyway, so as you say, like we're at this point of like, oh, yeah, the Avengers are coming together. And so anything that is getting in the way of that feels like you know, just no, get out of the way. It's like starting up a game and you're about to get into the bit where 
exactly what you bought the game and picked it up and boot up the game to do. You're about to get into it. The open world is right there. And people are like, here, let me do a long-winded tutorial for it. It's like, no, I've been I've been playing these games for years. Let me just let me just do the thing. You're frustrated because it feels like let's just get on with what we're all here for, what we all know is going to happen. And the role and the focus has certainly shifted as we transition between the books because Arlington, the book, was appropriately about Thomas, and he was a protagonist of that book. So our tendency is going to be to favour his perspective. But here, in Steamheart, he is part of a wider group, and the purposes of the scene are to weigh up our options for this situation. It's therefore up to Thomas to kind of be one of the many voices in the room. He's there to propose the alternative course of action that we won't be taking, but is nevertheless, it has enough logic to its merits that we don't outright dismiss everything about what he's saying. Like, mm. he's not saying, Ghostbusters don't ghostbust. Like, he's not like, <laughs> he's absolutely someone who has been a voice of reason and sensible logic that has been the guiding force for an entire book worth of material. So when he is saying we need to really consider the lay of things, it's hard to say that he has no point. He really does. But sometimes in team-up ensemble events, the same thing that once endeared us to a character initially when it was their story can be shown in the light that demonstrates why they would actually get on other strong-willed people's nerves or mm. worse, even be the cause of something going wrong. You know, when Star-Lord shoots his dad in an instinctive and emotional reaction in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, it's a satisfying moment that's in character and right for that story and the emotional journey that we're going through in that film. But when his response to Gamora's death means that he lashes out at Thanos to the detriment of the plan in Infinity War, we see how that same characteristic doesn't always lead to a favourable outcome, just because it did in his own story. That's not to get into the tiresome debate of, was it right for Quill to act emotionally and not do the logical thing? Characters act emotionally. We've mm -hmm. gone over this many times. It was right for his character that he makes mistakes, but it's a great indicator that we see the same sort of action, more or less, play out in two different situations, and it feels really right in one moment and really like, oh no, oh no, in another. Honestly, Chris Pratt's Starload is one of those characters that always sort of got under my skin in general. Like, mm. he could be funny at times, but I never liked the Guardians of the Galaxy movies as much as other people did, even though I didn't blame him for the events of Infinity War myself, because that argument is just foolish. Here mm. it feels a little bit different, because I am emotionally invested in Thomas. Anytime in this story where he starts doing something where I feel like, oh, you're not being self-aware, you're letting your own it's personal issues get in the way of this, it, it brings my fingers mm. to the bridge of my nose and go, oh, dear. It's a come on, Thomas moment. Like It's a just moment where you are starting to see some of the things that were definitely present in Arlington. It's not mm -hmm. that they are suddenly emerging for the purposes mm -hmm. of right. this story here. 
it's a two-way thing of in a ensemble narrative you get to actually see how different personalities go up against one another but it's also the fact that thomas has gone through something very dramatic he that everything at the end of arlington where he met seth yeah. is going to actually exacerbate certain things he will reevaluate certain stances and double down on other things that he feels are important I think it makes complete sense for him. And I know that's not really the point of this discussion here. It's just kind of, it's of interest to us that Thomas is now feeling like this presence in the room who's perhaps causing more trouble or, I'm trying to find the word because it's not that he's causing trouble, it's that he is voicing this uh, line of thought that feels like it's a, detraction from where we should be heading it's a feeling of maybe him indulging in some of his impulses that are not necessarily unhealthy but they feel like they're not quite right for what is ahead or what needs to be like ahead of us Uh, to be perfectly honest i'm not even sure that his motivations in saying what he does are not right necessarily Because as you yourself pointed out in your notes here, and as James himself goes on to say, we don't necessarily know what the right course of action is here. There are pros and cons to each of them. If there is anything that makes it difficult for me in this moment is primarily that we don't in general like to see our friends having conflict with each other. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it feels more like mm-hmm. when Doctor Strange and Tony were basically sniping at each other on board the ship, mm. where they both were being arrogant, but both making good arguments, and yet making the situation unnecessarily tense, even though both of them had reason to be worried about what was going to be coming forward and everything like that. That's actually a really good, <laughs> just came to me in terms of an analogy of how this feels. Yeah. It's like, it's like some of the conflicting moments in, say, Civil War or Infinity War, where mm. people that are both making good points are not necessarily able to discuss it without their own personalities getting in the way yeah and you know what it is i was trying to think to myself why is it that this doesn't necessarily feel tiresome and i think that what it comes down to is in some stories where heroes are proposing what is clearly the right path forward but they're meeting resistance by people who want to just build a wall or indulge in uh, selfish industrial motivations or stuff like that why it works in things like this or in Civil War or Infinity War is that the characters who are coming up with different ideas and are kind of butting heads a bit, they're all trying to propose something that like will help. This is a discussion with two good faith arguments as opposed mm. to someone like we were discussing previously that is only there to be a naysayer, to be a stumble mm. block. Yeah, which is why it feels like a difficult conversation, because like we're going over all these different thoughts. And it's not that like 
an argument is being voiced by Mayor Buck, who is always the buck of our, uh, like, he's always the straw man to our various scenarios. But you can see my point that Mm -hmm. it's easy to dismiss a proposition when it's from a character that we are encouraged to hate or dismiss. But when it's from characters who have been built up as smart people, good people, it's harder it's engaging having these discussions here about what's to be done about blank mm-hmm. because when it's done by characters whose perspectives we've already been inclined to follow it does make the problem feel more complicated and doesn't have like a obvious conclusion or path forward because if these characters are all having different things we can imagine the alternative versions of these books where we actually went down path B, C, D, even E. It's it's great. The one thing I was checking here is what the timing was on when Thomas met with Seth. Because you mentioned mm-hmm. that earlier in terms of that whole interaction having an influence on his mental state. Mm. And I was curious for a second, was that only a few days ago? But as mentioned in the book itself, the confrontation with Seth happened under a month ago. So Mm. Thomas has had time to process that whole experience. Um, It's not super fresh in his mind and therefore influencing him unduly, uh, Mm. even after the scouring experience of facing down someone that can read him the way Seth could. I would say that within a month is, I think, short enough that it feels like this is, we're still processing what this new information coming to light means for us and what we want to do going forward. But I do agree that I think it's a good midpoint where that is the case but he has had time to process it. He's not just reeling from the shock of it. He's actually Mm -hmm. had time to kind of sit, process, and say, with that in mind, here's what the situation currently is, Mm -hmm. which readies him for this meeting and this moment. The thing is, and this dovetails with the second point that I brought up as a result of this conflict and the reason why Thomas appears to be so adamant about wanting this to be a stealth mission. The argument that I made was Mm -hmm. that trying to keep Steamheart as a stealth mission felt to me on some level to be a fruitless idea. Mm -hmm. Because if you're going to be doing something stealthy, that literally implies that you're trying to not make a lot of noise. And Steamheart is not a quiet vehicle. It's going to attract the attention of normal people, let alone Seth or Wendigo senses that might be keener than your average human. It will Mm. attract attention wherever it goes, and they could do their best to avoid contact, but the whole idea of using Steamheart as protection to undertake this journey seems to be anathema to stealth. Mm. And you did go on to rebut this, and I want you to go ahead and say your point, but I'm going to immediately come back with my additional thoughts after 
writing down my initial contribution to the outline and seeing what you had to say to it. Mm. I mean, one thing that occurs to me now is that is it clear in the book if he is in that moment still suggesting making use of Steamheart or if they were to do the stealth mission, would it be more likely that they would actually use like a different means of something like, say, horses or something more traditional? No, I it, don't know if like it, it seems is definitely clear. involving Steamheart no, because it, it's the faster mode of transport, maybe. It's faster than Steelborn, than the thing that Tesla came up with. I don't remember off the top of my head how fast it is in comparison to horses. And because I'm an absolute nerd, I decided to do some math. Steamheart speed is somewhere between the 10 miles per hour of Steelborn and the much faster Spearhead, which Edison claims can cross Virginia in a day. Using the assistance of Google Maps, I asked it how long it would take a modern car to travel from Richmond on the east side of Virginia to Abington on the west side. About 300 miles, presuming a speed limit of, say, 50 miles per hour, it estimates a five-hour trip. That presumes, of course, a constant speed and well-maintained municipal highways. Looking at a map of Virginia from about 1871, there does appear to be roads going between those two cities, but nothing like what our current highway system is. Since we don't know exactly Spearhead's top speed, we can't know how close it can come to that, but since it would have to stop and recharge, it's probably something closer to 10 to 12 hours. The advantage that all the craft have over horses, of course, is that horses need to rest. The average speed of a horse is 27 miles per hour, but that's at a gallop. A website I found estimates the average horse can travel about 50 miles per day. And as it turns out, Abigail claims it took them 10 days to travel 500 miles, which means the math matches up pretty close to that. We'll presume their horses are in better condition than an average horse, and also possibly that they switched off horses at various RSA way stations, since the site also says that horses can't ride for many consecutive days without having a couple days of rest. Switching off horses at various locations is how the Pony Express was able to deliver mail over the shortest time possible, after all. All this taken into consideration, we don't know that Steamheart is much faster than horses, but the craft can possibly travel for longer without needing rest or refuel it. It also provides a whole lot of logistical resources that make it easier for the group to provide for itself. It's less wearing on the human body than riding for days, and provides something that riding on horses cannot provide, a layer of protection, both from the elements and damage from without. Whether that danger comes in the form of enemy weapons, or being ambushed at close range by Wendigo. Wendigo can still leap on Steamheart, but my point is is that they can't turn Steamheart into a Wendigo. So, like, they have time to, you know, drive away or run them over or shoot them off the hull. It's like having a walled fortress that just happens to be mobile. Okay, well, my only response to that can really be is that I really want to see fan art of a Wendigo version of Steamheart, just like... <laughs> 
essentially, if Steam Heart was a game, like I would imagine there to be like these aesthetic overlays that you could put onto Steam Heart, and one is just a Wendigo version, and it's like all sort of like tattered and like red, and like it's like all what, what cool. You're what you're discussing is the nightmare version of Kirby consuming a car. <laughs> Mouthful mode Steam Heart. <laughs> <laughs> To get to the aforementioned response, the retort to your point about the stealth mission of Steamheart being a little bit optimistic and unlikely to succeed, mm-hmm. there is a big difference between traveling across country on a mission and paths that are only known to a few and loudly and intentionally announcing your intentions on a national level. And Steamheart is not an army or a fleet. It is one vessel. It may be quite prominent when you're in the vicinity, but it's not like it's big enough for its position to be known at all times. As an example, in The Last Airbender, Team Avatar travels the skies on a flying bison. It's quite a conspicuous sight. Of course, I would argue that Appa is a lot stealthier than Steamheart. The act of flying doesn't tend to make that much noise, which is part of the reason why birds of prey can make such good hunters. And we already know that Brioth can be very quiet, given the way he snuck up to turn Vice President Hayes into nom-noms. But I digress. And yet, despite the Fire Nation being aware of Aang's existence and actively set on capturing the Avatar, they don't actually know where he is at all times. So yes, much like in that show, I'm sure that if you had the means to pursue some way of tracking their movement, then you probably could keep a bead on Steamheart relatively easily. But it's not impossible for Steamheart to accomplish its mission in secrecy, eye-catching as it is, if it takes the right path and heads to its destination with enough speed. But that chance is just that, a risky possibility. There are no guarantees, and it really is just a supposition if it can be really done at all. And James notes that really all of their options carry similar uncertainties and risks. But we know that Thomas favours security and has misgivings about relying on public favour. So we understand why Truth's plan doesn't sound like a done deal for him. Honestly, that was one of the things that I hadn't considered and should have back when I first wrote this, because Thomas was focused on Seth at the time, especially in terms of the back and forth between him and Truth and Sarah about, can we negotiate further with him? Is that even a possibility? Will he be mad if we get in and out anyway? That whole thing. Some of the stuff that your point brings up is that Seth and the Wendigo are not the only danger. We know from Arlington that there are lots of non-aligned groups that are very much a danger. And Mm. even though humans aren't going to be talking to the Wendigo and letting them know, hey, there's this enormous steam craft that is scheduled to be here at this specific time because there's going to be a big frou-frou about, you know, like introducing them and, 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 and interacting with the people it is far more likely for human intelligence to reach hostile human forces. It's a thousand miles not through friendly uncharted territory, but through lands we haven't secured. You're going to encounter people who haven't yet been contacted by the reunified states. 
to them, you may well represent a hated enemy. We have no idea what you may come up against, especially considering the creepy supernatural stuff that these gentlemen here have catalogued. Yes, and Seth felt like he was quite an omnipotent figure in Arlington. It was like he represents the heart of the Wendigo, and then he comes into the symbolic heart of the survivors of America in Washington. Mm -hmm. And he is able to say, look, I've seen all of your plans, not too impressed. Like, And <laughs> it feels as if he knows far more than he reasonably should. But we have to remember that he knows as much as he does because of the handbook. He read through the handbook. Mm. He read through something that was put out there deliberately to spread information in a written textual format. So while we fear that if we make this loud announcement to our own side that Seth will find out about it sooner or later, as far as what is established, there isn't actually anything to say that some Wendigo spy in a set of trench coat and newspaper <laughs> in the middle of Washington is just like making notes. <laughs> like... Most of the dinosaurs were not clever from what I can tell. Uh, the raptors do seem quite clever. Smaller by our size. They seem to be able to break into rooms, work locks, do computer stuff, <laughs> download raptor porn. <laughs> ah. And then run away and not pay. They can almost pass for us. You put a little pork pie hat on a raptor, and it almost looks like a human being. Is this your car, sir? Nah. <laughs> Do you realize how fast you were going? <laughs> you were going a million miles an hour. <laughs> is that over the, over the thing? Yes, the, the limit is 30 miles an hour. Oh, that's... Oh. <laughs> Very busy. <laughs> Well, can you show me your documents? I love I, I can't. Ah, it's a raptor. Get me a dustbin lid. It's a fucking raptor. This is why this is quite a fascinating moment because they're trying to evaluate the path forward based on what they know, but mm -hmm. a lot of it is based on supposition. They don't know that Seth like will find out about it or he won't. But as you say, getting back to the main point they can be damn well sure that they can make their own side know about it. Because if you just send Steamheart in to people who aren't even that all well connected or friendly to the reunified states at this particular point, they're going to just look at Steamheart and go, what the fuck is that? <laughs> so... Yeah. Obviously, we're going to get more into Truth's contribution to the proceedings as we get into further chapters and everything like that. And I always felt obviously conflicted about Truth's arguments and her positions versus Thomas's arguments and his positions. This is once more where I ask you to get out your penny and your jar and remind you how the framing of the Arlington novel matches the framing of The West Wing. That show is full of conversations arguing different sides of a position. Sometimes the arguments are outsiders versus insiders, the opposition versus our protagonists. And more often than not, our protagonists are the ones that make the better argument, whether they actually succeed on getting their way or not. But the most difficult arguments were when the insiders disagreed about the best course forwards. 
And one of the recurring themes was always about what was right versus what was politically sound. That sometimes the right thing to do wasn't always achievable. In Arlington, truth is often the political voice of that story. And because Thomas, and by extension Alex, hates politics, he therefore hates to give that point of view the time of day. And we understand why. But here in this story, that isn't the crux of the argument. Yes, Truth's position has political aspects to it, but at its heart it's about solving two problems at the same time. Since Truth is worried about maintaining what they have created, she wants to use a mission that has one goal to accomplish two to deal with the supernatural threat, and use the Steamheart Exposition as a rallying point to foster goodwill at the same time. Thomas is only concerned about what is of practical use, and feels like diluting the mission means that neither will be done well. But it also feels like he's biased against Truth's ideas because they are goals in his blind spot, things that he thinks are not as important overall, and this is something we'll talk more about later. On top of all of that, he is sending Harry into this danger, and it could well be that he's more worried about the threat other humans pose to her outside of the protection of Steamheart. It's a complicated web of both frustrating and sympathetic concerns. You know what occurs to me, though, about the differences in what Truth proposes in different books is that in Arlington, she's proposing making changes to the cartographer's handbook mm -hmm. in a story level that is just the thing that they're sending out to people mm -hmm. on a meta level she is arguing against one of the books that w is part of this series but we're inclined to be against her because we're reading these stories so you can assume that readers are engaged with them and will be in line with these stories happening which means that the book that we've already taken in someone saying like no we can't have it be that we're sort of predisposed to be like no 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 the the cartographer's handbook is fine like leave it as is in this case toby went on to say truth's argument is metatextually in favor of making possible the story the audience wants to see happen hmm you and i have experienced the book together a couple different times mm -hmm. now and there could have been an alternate universe, so to speak, where they decided to go with Thomas's recommendations for how to do things, and it would have ended up differently. Mm -hmm. But there is something behind what you're saying in that following Truth's idea allows for more interaction with other humans creates opportunities for hmm. drama and interaction that wouldn't have happened if it was just the group keeping to themselves, would they even have ended up having some of the dramatic story beat moments that you and I know about and are going to end up talking about if they were like, no, we're not going to interact with people? Exactly. And it's because Arlington as a book and as a story is this Washington political thriller. By design, it's a very internally focused story to tell. And here, in Steamheart, it's a road trip. It's an expedition. It's externally focused. Mm -hmm. So Thomas, who will always have this sort of feeling of, like, as much as he wants to secure the human territories and lock them down and get them, like, secure, 
he does have this tendency to withdraw, and that feels antithetical to what the spirit of this book is. Dovetailing with what you were saying a moment ago, if you start changing the contents of the cartographer's handbook, you're also Mm. changing the thematic messages of New Century as a whole. Because it's the thesis statement. Exactly. So if you start watering that down, then it doesn't hold the message. It doesn't hold the weight that Thomas and therefore Alex is trying to promote as being Mm. part of New Century. So truth, Uh, in a certain way, has to lose that fight. Yeah, what a fascinating series of books where you can have someone who, in so many ways, Thomas should be the founding father of New Century because (laughs) his book is like, here's what New Century is about. And yet, time after time, we are showing he's not unproblematic. He does have things to him which feel like they could be a negative impulse. Let's not blow this out of proportion. Thomas is not a major roadblock in the way of Steamheart happening. He does sign off on it. We can see that. So We knew that back yeah. in Arlington because it's yeah, like yeah. Arlington establishes the Steamheart mm, expedition yeah. happens so, and so, time moves on from there. Yeah, so we don't want to get too like so hyper focused on the discussion that we forget that Thomas is on side with this. He signs off on it. Nevertheless, isn't it fascinating that this person responsible for the inciting part of this phase of New Century and New Century as a whole is not wholly on board with this, the sort of turning point, the major nexus point of New Century and phase one? Well, but that's one of the significant factors of good storytelling, compelling conflicts between people that we don't want to see come into conflict. It's almost as if these are a good series of books that we enjoy talking about. <laughs> you know, you, you, it, it seems to, you know, all the evidence seems to be pointing in that direction, yeah. Mm. Results inconclusive, let's carry on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Once we get to episode 300 and we're like at the, <laughs> like we've reached the end of phase three, we could be like, yeah, you know, new century, all right. Might give mm. it a recommend. So... I want this to only be the beginning of our conversation into this, but because it feels like we haven't talked as much about this aspect of New Century, I want to start working on bringing it up a little bit more frequently. Mm. I'm skeptical at the supposition that there's a part of New Century we haven't talked about in detail, but go on. Well, (laughs) the thing is, is, the one aspect of New Century that we haven't dived into nearly as much is its music. Mm. We've discussed the familiar sting of One Wild West and how we associate that with certain characters in certain settings ever since it came to being in Secret Rooms. You brought up Dirt Roads in Chapter 2 and how we're going to come across that particular piece of music in another book we haven't gotten to yet. And... In these few chapters that we're discussing over the next couple of sessions, we have many returning musical themes to go with our recap episodes, so to speak. Thunder Dreams, the one piece that I've always associated as primarily being the music that goes along with the credit sequences for New Century. 
This is used mm -hmm. as background to Abigail describing her dreams. It's very ethereal and makes it feel like mm -hmm. moving through fog in dreams or mm -hmm. being like the sound of what it feels like to be on a, on a spooky moonlit night or something like that. It's very dark mm. and beautiful. It's a constant companion as one of the ongoing vibes of New Century. Mm. You know what I've always felt about that theme? And you're right, it's the thing that like after the closing music or song of a audio drama of New Century, or even just we'll hear this when it's when it's put out on the uh, podcast feed yeah and, um credits at the end of every mm. chapter that's yeah music. it's it's always felt to me like new century is so fluid and it's about so many different things in secret rooms it's superficially about a western and like aims of survival horror mm. through the night and all of that to describe that as the superficial characteristics of it is, mm. I think, selling it short. But for mm. the purposes of my point here, I'll use that word. But this theme is what the internal truth of New Century is about. It's the sort of, you get to the core, you open the box, and you see in the box, like, a whole night sky inside of the box. And it's this feeling of like you've gone through and passed the individual stories that ground each of these characters and each of these stories and you're peeking through and seeing the endless tapestry that connects all of them that's mm. what i've always felt with them and that's why it feels like beautiful and intoxicatingly like sort of inviting but also a little bit disconcerting and a little bit ominous because of the unexplored corners that are yet to reveal themselves. That's that's what I always feel with that music. It's great. Mm, mm. And mm. of course, we're about to get in deeper with the discussion of Chapter 7, but when mm. Chapter 6 ends and Thomas is making his dramatic pronouncement about we don't know what else there is out there, it immediately leads into Agent in Shanghai, which we know is the prominent theme of Tiger's Eye, as well as mm. capping it all off with a loud tiger's roar, letting people know basically, oh, I'm sorry, did you forget about the purple tiger and her companion? They're about to be the subject of the next chapter. It's the equivalent of seeing the hammer and hearing the thunder at the end yeah. of Iron Man 2. It's yeah. like you know like you absolutely know these themes are arguably more important than they've ever been in new century in the original stories they were featured in they're employed to build mood tone aesthetic all that good stuff that we associate with music but here when we're trying to establish who all of these characters are what kind of stories and adventures they've had in the past in a word, what flavors they're bringing to this stew that Steamheart is shaping up to be like a like a potluck that all the characters are showing up and bringing their own like <laughs> little contributions. Mm -hmm. Then music is the perfect tool for communicating in an instant what something is about. New Century is built on Alex's writing because ultimately they are books at their core. 
But we are fortunate enough that Alex has found these themes over the years that hit at exactly what these stories are. And invoking them here helps to create this album out of the individual tracks that we've been enjoying over the past half dozen books or so. To be honest, like I'll hold my hand up and say that my favourite music artist is Miracle of Sound, who mm-hmm. whose work features in New Century at multiple points. Something that I've always loved is I'll follow each new release and just eat it up. And then when he compiles them all together into an album, it just feels like, oh, yeah. And that's what Steamheart feels like. Mm. Each track has stood by itself, but now we get to experience them next to each other, still seeing them for their own individual strengths, but having them next to one another just brings something new out of it. Mm. It becomes more significant in Chapter 7 because, as we're about to talk about, the feeling of how that story is narrated and plays out is distinctly different from most of the chapters that we've had leading up to this point. Yes, there are occasions where there's been one person mostly narrating what's going on and there hasn't been a whole lot of interaction and byplay but in particular in chapters five and six even though the framing device is still that someone is recounting the events in the arlington's office in a journal entry it still far more has a person-to-person real-time feel to it in that so many overlapping voices are happening it's highly interactive And then when we segue into chapter seven, we return not only to a narrative voice that is one person retelling a story, a story that we have heard recently. They're doing it in such a way that has a different quality to it than the narration of some of those previous chapters or of some of the previous books of New Century. And that means that music plays a whole lot more into chapter seven than it did in some of the previous ones. Like for most of them, there's two or three themes that are used during the course of those chapters. The second we get into chapter seven, we suddenly balloon up to one, two, three, four, five, six, eight different themes, plus ancient Ang Shanghai on top of that. That is connected to what you were saying, or it's very important to use music to set an emotional stage as Mm. whatever else is playing out, whether it's narration Mm. or people talking to each other. It's essential because of everything we've had so far, this is the biggest sort of sidestep to bring in something. And they thread it great. I love at the end of chapter six when it's who knows what else is out there. It's Mm -hmm. a great line as you can like, We've been talking about imagining how the shot would look if this was filmed. And if that moment, I would imagine that before they're done speaking, we actually cut to <laughs> the ship and we actually see the portal. Who knows what else might be out there? And on beat, Frau and Miguel like come tumbling through, like crashing into something. Like, yeah. Yeah. As, and, as if we actually saw that that dramatic moment that's in the middle of Chapter 7. In the movie version of that, they wouldn't recap the entirety of Tiger's Eye. 
um, or at least they wouldn't do it in exactly the same mm-hmm. way. Obviously, the the, the I, storytelling would take on a different form. I would probably, if I was doing it, sort of start with them coming out, and as he's exploring the ship, you have little moments where Miguel, there are things that prompt little flashes of visual shorthand to sum up key moments from Tiger's Eye, things mm-hmm. where it's all like done through visual storytelling, Maybe Miguel looks at his claws and or something that he has come out with just to like cut something to make his way through somewhere and it flashes to Prowl crafting them for him. Just mm-hmm. little things like that because it also would fit with the idea of when narrating this in a different way mm-hmm. because you, the... you, 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 Oh, I just got I just had a great mental image. So yeah. going with what you were saying in a moment ago... Thomas's voice fading off going, who knows what else you're going to find out there. And we're doing a sudden scene transition from like following Thomas's eyeline, like he's looking off into the distance or through an open mm. window. And the scene transitions to the inside of the Natchez, the open yeah. wind door, kind of like we were talking about for chapter one, where we see the open wind door and then all of a sudden the soldier tumbles through it dramatically. Suddenly Mm -hmm. we have a recapturing of that moment. But before anything else happens, we just see the open wind door in space. And then all of a sudden we hear... My name is Miguel Alejandro Delgado. And we hear the sting of Sardana. (laughs) And I am home from a very long journey. And then all of a sudden, Tiger come through the door with Yes! Like, what a great way. (laughs) Like, I could imagine just showing that to someone and people being like, I don't need to know anything else. I am on board. (laughs) Just, like, Miguel's narration. Suddenly, Tiger. Like, Mm -hmm. yep. No, I'm good. I'm good. No more context required. Like, I do want to know the full story, but I'm humble. <laughs> Everyone's down with the big purple tiger. Um, everyone. Yeah. Literally everyone. And that's a hell of a way to end our episode for this week. Next week, we talk for a full hour on the retelling of Tiger's Eye within the space of a chapter of Steamheart. It's kind of shocking. Considering how much time we took discussing the original, you'd think there's nothing left to say. And we found enough material for an entire episode. To close us out, a song that came to mind while editing, thinking about how old coping mechanisms or tactics might no longer work as the world changes around you. Never mind the lyrics of the bridge that talk about living in survival mode. Until next time... This is Alanis Morissette with Precious Illusions. You'll rescue me right in the exact same way they never did. I'll be happy right when your healing parts kick in. You'll complete me right. My life can finally begin I'll be worthy right Only when you realize the gem I am But this won't work now The way it wants to
Keep on playing the victim. These precious illusions.